Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Jason B., Paul M., Harry C., Johanna A., and Thomas N. Returning guest on the program today, Mr. Daniel Major is with us. Daniel is the Chief Executive Officer at Goviex Uranium, a Niger and Zambia-focused conventional uranium project developer advancing the Matawela and Mutanga uranium projects towards construction. Goviex is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol GXU, as well as on the US OTC markets under the symbol GVXXF. Mr. Major, thank you for coming back on the podcast. It's been a while. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. And thanks for the invite. Always enjoy these discussions. Yeah, Daniel, likewise. It's been a while since we've uh, done a formal podcast here and always appreciate you having you back. Well, why don't we get right to it here as we have a number of things to discuss. And of course, I'll refer the audience back to prior discussions on background uh, past events for the company. But you just got done with the WNA conference in London. What are your thoughts coming out of that meeting? Oh, I was at the Hague conference and I thought they were bullish at the Hague conference um, just before the summer break. I mean, they're even more bullish at the WNA conference. I mean, really highlighted by their latest nuclear fuel supply. Uh, I mean, you're looking at generation capacity going up what from 391 gigawatts now to 444 gigawatts by 2030 and then 686 gigawatts by 2040. You know, that goes from 170 million pounds demand up to 337 million pounds. And against that, and that now includes SMRs. And against that, after 2028, they're having to put in maybe pounds from somewhere um, and hoping that pounds will come up from somewhere to fill the gap. And they've included every single plan and prospective project as well. So, you know, incre increasing expectation on demand, uh, but no clear new projects available to fill the gap, uh, you know, getting very bullish in nuclear as a general. They had representatives from the US government, the UK government there, highlighting where their strengths were and where they were going forward. There was a very long list of new countries that had entered the nuclear space or were planning on entering the nuclear space. So very, very exciting, I think, for our industry as a whole. I think the biggest concern remains the overall supply side, which is if it's getting this good, how do we keep up with it? You know, how do we make sure that all the components for nuclear builds come through on time, um, that, you know, we don't continue to have issues that delay construction and, and put those risks out there. Um, but I think the key message was we're getting increasing political support, whether it's government support for the construction or increasing focus on financial support. So, yeah, a very bullish approach from WNA. There were some 700 people there. It was uh, the busiest I've ever seen it. Lots of inputs coming in from various parties on our side as well on some of the 
key insights coming out of that conference. And of course, as you said, there's a lot of unanswered questions that unfortunately are, are going to have answers one way or the other as we progress down through the rest of the decade here, now uh, six and a half years yet to go here. Why don't we move on straight to Niger here? That's in the minds of a lot of the uranium community and is one of the fresher events that's happened as well. Just another layer on of the problems in this sector. But how about just an update on what you're getting on the ground in Niger, Daniel? And then also, have you been to the country since the power struggle started? Before I answer that question, I think you kind of alluded to it there. I mean, Niger is an interesting one because it it highlights that problem that the industry overall has, which is nothing's guaranteed um, with regarding when supply will come online um, and that there are a number of risks sitting out there on the supply side, you know, and Niger is obviously part of that. Um, and we'll, I'll answer your question in a minute on that. But also, you know, Cameco announces that, you know, they, they're not meeting their production um, targets um, and, are, you know, having issues and getting up and running. You know, you have Peninsula, of course, who have had to re-engineer their project after the contract changes they've had to go through. So, you know, I think that's one of the issues as well that was highlighted during the conference, which is, yeah, we need all of this new supply. But it's all got to turn up on time um, and be achieved. Um, and there are all of those overall risks associated with it. With regarding Niger, I think the key highlight here really was it was just a surprise for everybody that it actually occurred. It was not expected by any government institutions. There was no triggers out there. If you looked at other countries in the region um, that have gone through these changes, You've had demonstrations on the streets weeks prior or months prior um, going through, uh, complaining about things. You've had multiple changes in government um, up and running before that, you know, the, a military coup comes through and, and takes over the government. So I think that's one of the key things that's very different here. Um, I think the other thing that is very different in relation to Niger is that the way that ECOWAS has responded, they put sanctions onto Mali, um, but they were relatively low level or you could get around them. The sanctions that have been placed on Niger have been very abrupt, very brusque uh, in their approach. They have literally shut the country down. Um, there is no access um, or there was no access at all. Uh, into the country, and unless you were trying to come in through Mali and Burkina Faso, um, that included air transport. Um, only last week did we have air transport embargoes get lifted, so now technically you can fly in. So to your last part, no, because it was literally not possible to get into the country until last week um, by anybody. That change has come through. The impact of those sanctions have been substantive. You've seen it from a uranium production point of view only last week, at the end of last week, where Arano has finally had to shut down its operations at Somaya because it has not got any consumables left or appropriate number of consumables left to continue its operations. And it's reverting to its planned maintenance program. And that applies to the whole country. So it's having to survive on what it can produce internally 
um, you've seen a sharp rocketing of food inflation uh, going through uh, in the southern parts of the country where you rely on uh, imports of electricity from Nigeria, substantial amount of power cuts uh, running through the country. The government has been, well, most of the banks have just, they're not functioning properly either because ECOWAS controls most of the banking system. Um, and so bank transfers are, are very difficult, you know, to the point we're having to make payments uh, of some of our pay by cash instead. It's the only way to do it. And then uh, and, and even cash is limited uh, on access. So it is from that point of view, very difficult. But, you know, the government that has been formed, you have a minister of mines, you have a minister of environment and the minister of, you know, the other departments are all there. We know our Minister of Mines well from the past, we're able to continue to, to work with them. So, you know, in country, we're able to continue dealing with the ministries uh, as we go forward. But obviously, you know, with the constraints that are out there, very difficult to, to do much more than continue with the administrative side uh, with the government. So we are continuing to update our ESIA because we change things with the feasibility study continuing to work with the Minister of Mines on on that side of the admin side of our project. A lot of moving parts here, a lot of difficulties, and it's tough to get straight information, whether you're in country or not in country. I think it's very difficult to manage the various parties you have here and the various uh, interests. And so I think these things are tough. Just to continue on this a little bit more, what are your thoughts just, we've seen the various uh, positions on both sides here, and there's, you know, obviously still information coming in. And it's, again, it's tough to sort out and make sound decisions on what needs to happen. And of course, investing decisions on top of that. And then also the fact that there's a time frame that's attached to this as well. But what do you think it's at the core here? Is it the desired exit of the French from Niger? Is this related to a social issue? Is it pipeline construction? Uh, essentially the East and the West, yet another place on the map to have a struggle over interests. What can you say? What do you think is at the core of this? From what we could see going into this and from where we've seen it develop, this is not an East-West geopolitical forced coup. That's not what we've got here. I, I believe this is internal politics uh, within the country. Um, it is a, an attempt to get a transition of power whether that is successful or otherwise, we'll, we'll wait to see how that comes around. As a result of the coup, it has become very clear that Niger is very important to global geopolitics though. Um, the, the work being undertaken and the efforts being undertaken, particularly by you know, the US government, uh, importantly, and, and the EU, um, and the UK to find a resolution um, is is paramount to what is going to happen here. Uh, against that, you know, you have the actions by by ECOWAS themselves, and I think it's very important um, to recognise that ECOWAS is being headed by the the president of Nigeria. It is very clear that within the Western states of Africa. Nobody wants to see a, a potentially weakened Niger. We've seen what has happened in other jurisdictions as a result of military change in 
in government. You know, the increase in number of tax has become an issue. And nobody wants to see that happen because it's, there's a not potentially a knock-on effect. So they want to see strong government within this jurisdiction. And, you know, Niger was doing a fantastic job of dealing with the security issues around here, particularly when you look at the success it had had um, supporting Nigeria um, against Boko Haram, which really had become, you know, a very quiet situation and really no attacks at all. And it gone very well it was actually going very well on the on the west side as well so i think there's a lot of support there um this i do see being very much an internal issue between parties for whatever reasons but i think it's also important to recognize that we need stable government from from this point onwards and i think that's probably remains the biggest risk at the moment in this situation is we don't have that delivered to date very well and just with this, obviously, you have to ask the question about timing. And for me, looking at that timing to see a resolution to the problems, because I'm not in the camp of this gets resolved quickly, just simply based on recent other events. When I say recent over the last, call it five to 10 years, but just referring over to a place like Sudan, for example, not far away, and also places like Syria. You know, these problems don't seem to resolve quickly, but I'd like to just get your thought on what you see there in terms of a timeline to resolve. I know it's very you know, speculative at this point, but is this something that you think resolves in the next, call it uh, 18 to 24 months, or do we see something that's even longer than that? I personally am optimistic, Andrew. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest differences here compared to the, the ones you noted um, and what we saw in, in Mali and Burkina Faso is the stranglehold that ECOWAS has created over this country. You know, nothing is getting in. So a lot of people who are relying on those imports are under serious pressure. As I say, the banking system is, is not really functioning properly because ECOWAS controls the majority of those banks. You know, there's not enough, nothing, no, nothing's being gained from a tax point of view. I mean, I think the, the president, Bazoum, had wrote an early letter um, to the international community highlighting that over 40% of the national budget of Niger relied on international funding to get through. You know, with um, a company like Arano closing, you know, one, not being able to ship its uranium and now actually not being able to produce its uranium. The, any royalties that they would have been able to pay to the government are no longer payable because they're not selling anything. Uh, and the royalties are obviously on the on the sales process. So you've got a government here that is, is financially really struggling. Um, and I think that's very different to what you have seen elsewhere, where that level of sanctions was, was not, didn't achieve that. So the government still had income coming through. In case of Mali, obviously a, a decent income still coming from the gold producers, et cetera. I think that's the biggest difference here, Andrew, that compared to others, they don't want this thing to hang around. They want to get a resolution. And hence the reason why I, I remain optimistic that if ECOWAS can continue what it's doing, I think we will see a change. I think we are starting to see increasing and balancing the, the real news and the false news is obviously part of the challenge all the time here. But certainly, if I looked at 
you know, the bits of information that come my way, you know, you've had state employees not paid since July and in some cases, some in some have, but a lot haven't. Uh, that causes disruption. You've had massive increases as a cost of living. Uh, a lot of people's livelihood has been cut off by, by sanctions. And as a result, we're starting to see an increasing amount of negative commentary from inside about the new government. You know, we saw initially these massive rallies and recent images of rallies that were a lot smaller than we've seen before. Uh, and it could just be timing and cameras. But I think we are reaching that point where the country internally has got to settle itself. And that hasn't happened. You've seen, particularly on the eastern side of the country, you know, a number of an increasing marches, which are actually not just negative to the change, but actually pro the previous prime minister, president. So, I, I you know, th that is not something I've seen in other places like where we're in Mali when we had the coup there. So I think there are some changes here. Uh, how it all resolves and how long, I, I, you know, I'm optimistic that we will get a resolution. We need a resolution. Uh, I mean, I think the point I've made to to others on this one as well, I mean, one thing about, you know, military governments is they're not nationalistic and they're not socialist. Um, you know, they like to keep their, their mining industries operating um, and going forward. So I don't think that part of it's uh, an issue, but I think we just need some clear lines of stability to go forward with. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate uh, the comments there and your views on it. And, you know, it's very uh, just really sad and unfortunate for the local people there. I think that's that's really where yeah. the damage comes in. I mean, you know, aside from the investment community, but just for the local people, I think it's just absolutely uh, terrible what's happened here. And hopefully there is a quick resolve and, and that people can see what economics and things like capitalism can do to hopefully uh, get things restarted, get back on the right track. And hopefully it, it does not go the way of significant long periods of time of ruin, which we have seen in similar cases, not exactly the same, of course, as you noted, we definitely have a number of cases to look at uh, either in the past or currently ongoing in the world. Well, why don't we move into Goviex specifically here and talk yeah. just some details here to get kicked off and just talk about the challenges that lie ahead. Uh, but why don't you first update us on the capital structure here, Daniel, in terms of current shares outstanding, the cash on hand, major shareholders, and also if you see the need to do any equity financing before year end. Uh, I'll tell you what we have. We currently are sitting with 726 million shares on issue. Difficult to give you a, a breakdown on major shareholders other than the management. Uh, we had a couple of major investors come through on the last fundraise. We've got Denison still at four and a half, Insiders are at 11. We have a very large oboe list. It's about 65% of all of our investors. So can't really give you much clarity beyond that. We obviously did that fundraise earlier in the year. Uh, would not be correct of me without financial disclosures out there on financial statements to tell you what we currently have. But you know, let's put it this way, we recognize where we are and are continuing to to keep things as lean and mean as we can. And I think I think this is a useful point for me just to caveat in. Uh, the UXC put a, a report out about, well, I think it was their last quarter report. It mapped funds raised by uranium developers 2019 to 2023. Um, and I was very pleased to see that Goviex was at the bottom of that pile. We've raised less money than our peers. Uh, and we've done that for all three projects 
uh, to be moved through. We've taken one all the way through its final feasibility study, and uh, we've got another one getting close to that as well. So, you know, we we are very lean in what we try and do and achieve uh, with the funds that we do get um, from investors. You know, obviously, with the issues going on here, it, it makes sense to try to conserve as, as much as you guys can here, uh, just because of, of course, valuation. It's been very difficult to get Matawella developed, of course, and just like any project, uh, it's not just Matawella, but any project, uh, whether it's in Niger or elsewhere. And of exactly. course, many challenges lie ahead, the construction financing hurdle, uh, things like commissioning, construction delays, lead times on equipment, materials, of course, technical expertise, as you know, continues to plague the industry. And we've said this before, and with others, uh, other people have said this, you know, mining uranium is just really hard work. And uh, even the best out there that uh, folks look up to in this sector have confirmed that mining uranium is difficult. <laughs> and so, of course, yeah. you layer on a, a power debacle like what we see in Niger that's ongoing here makes it worse on a number of fronts, including financing. And of yep. course, with that comes a lower valuation that we've seen, as you've uh, clearly noted here and have seen, Daniel, that we've seen valuation actually with Goviax hold up better than uh, pure company Global Atomic in this particular case, which a number of reasons for that. But how are you pushing forward at this point? And are there potentially strategic partners being considered to assist with the development of Matawella? Well, before I do that, let's just remember as well, Goviax has two projects. We have Matanga as well. So, you know, we need to make sure that we, we put that in reference. And um, so, you know, unlike uh, many of our peers, we have two development uranium projects. And I, and, I, and I hear you on the difficulties of developing uranium projects. I think that applies to almost all mining at the moment. Uh, just mining in general is, is difficult um, to do and it isn't made any easier across the world, no matter what commodity you, you want to go through. I think one point I would make here is is that you know we, we we continue to to work with where we were on the financing side of this. You know we really I see was looking very much at a a delay process than anything else here. And the, the only answer I can really give you on that is that this is a political decision. At the end of the day, we highlighted that earlier in presentations that a lot of our conversations were with export credit agencies and dfis they are once they make their decision they're very sticky they they tend to go with you all the way and i don't think that position has changed um, and certainly i've received no other feedback than that and we wait really to see where this whole process in niger settles out depending on how international politics resolves itself um, with Niger will depend very much on how we'll be able to structure ourselves going forward uh, with Niger. Um, on your issue of, you know, finding, you know, strategic partners, I, you know, again, that layers in another bunch of geopolitical questions. Um, and at the moment, it, it's not something we're, we're looking to achieve. Um, you know, uh, East-West does not always meet in the middle um and you know i think we still have opportunities here uh, to take this project forward the way we were uh, and we were being very successful in getting there um we now just have to literally give it time on the ground to see where we settle out yeah i think that's a, a logical approach here 
yeah, lots of difficulties with finding strategic partners. And, you know, of course, some of those more sophisticated strategic partners, Daniel, this is a joke, but uh, so some of them are looking at the ESG scores in Niger and those aren't looking too good. So <laughs> well, you say that, but the only, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot, many components to ESG. I mean, interesting. I mean, I, joking aside, Somaier is actually a 40, ISO 14,000 and 9,001 mine. So the geopolitics may be interesting, but from an operating point of view, the uranium mines in, in Niger are run to international standards. Yeah. So you know, we deal with that. The other part, and I agree with you on that, It this uh, you know coup has not helped. And we were, one thing I was always proud of with Niger was you know the way, since I've been operating there, the government has been transparent, easy to work with, stable law etc i mean this has obviously made it very difficult for us but we will see uh, where we end up and where we move to to the next stage yes of course no, i appreciate you playing along with that it's always interesting some of these various uh, things that come up and of course certifications uh, another conversation for us to have another time on experience and quality and whether or not those experience quality things like reasonable course of business and performing properly need a certification yeah or a specification yep. attached to them. That's a different conversation. But just on this, a little bit more on the financing part of it, we know that uh, financiers are, are looking differently at Niger now than they were months ago in terms of risk. And of course, you always have question of discount rates in jurisdictions like Niger versus maybe other jurisdictions that people deem more stable and safe. Any updates just on the financing environment or any conversations that you can talk about? Of course, I know these are sensitive, but any maybe insights for the audience in terms of the financing environment, Daniel. And then also another thing that I think sometimes people forget that have happened in the past, offtake with prepayments. Let's deal with the financing side first. I think many of my comments already about patients apply to the financing community as well. You know, we were in a very good position just before this all kicked off at the end of July. We were well covered. The feedback we got from the export credit agencies and the DFIs that we had our letters with was just let us wait to see where our sovereign governments end up with at the end of this process. And beyond that, there's not much else you can have a conversation. You know, you have to let these kind of government entities just work through their process. If everything resolves as they would like to see it resolve, and I don't each of them has their own political positioning on this, then I don't see that being a, a risk. And in fact, if it works out the way they want it to work out, you can see governmental commitments actually rise. And I think that's one of the optimistic sides of this as well, which is if the, you know, the external parties that, that are backing export credit agencies and DFIs are supportive of where we end up, then, you know, they will already trying to support Niger considerably, then the, I can see a doubling down on that position and even more support to, you know, help this country develop and go forward as a region. So, you know, there, there is a lot in the balance here, uh, but I can see, you know, there's a much positive here as anything else. Yeah, on prepaid offtakes, not something we're really seeing. I mean, the last guys who did a prepaid offtake got seriously burned and wouldn't ever consider another one. And it almost has put them off new developers and completely. Um, they're starting to change slightly in the way they're looking at things, but they are a company that have 
a heavy onerous on ESG as well. Uh, very heavy, probably one of the most aggressive on the ESG side. Um, but, you know, the scale of prepaid, uh, I don't think we're seeing at the moment out there. And utilities are definitely, though, very open to conversation. I mean, even with ourselves at the WNA, we had a, a, a number of conversations on this issue. Uh, you know, we continue to respond to RFPs. But, you know, there is very clearly a understanding that, you know, Africa has got to be part of that diversification uh, for a lot. I mean, if you look at Euroatom's um, last report, I mean, 25% of the material comes out of Niger, but then the the others are Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan and Russia and uh, Canada. So, you know, diversification is definitely something that, that Europe is looking to consider how it can keep doing it. But there are only so many places you can diversify to within the uranium industry. Yeah, good point. And, you know, there's only so many chocolate chip cookies left on the plate, Daniel. And that's, Absolutely. I think. Absolutely. I think the jury's still out on this, uh, on the various means and methods in terms of getting some of these projects over the finish line in the coming years going to be very difficult. And I think the difficulties have started to show up. I, I think there's more to come, uh, which is very positive. And I think that's what you get after uh, 10 plus years of just absolute negative, negative for the sector the entire time. And so I think we've got the pipeline loaded really well going forward here. Overall highlights of the broken nature of the sector. With the Niger problems, as you alluded to earlier, uh, Goviex is not necessarily just a one-trick pony, but maybe uh, there's a little bit more there in terms of the pipeline that Goviex has. Uh, yeah. Is there a plan to shift some of the focus to Zambia and potentially advance Mutanga as the starter project? We know that there's uh, delays in Niger at this point and the potential for more, but you know, Mutanga is not a bad little project. It's in Zambia, which obviously has experience with certainly on the transport side with respect to uranium. Yep. What do you have to say there? What do you think? Well, I mean, you know, we've always been running these two projects in a, on a parallel track. And our emphasis has always been to keep Matawela ahead and Zambia about two years behind, simply because, you know, we didn't want to try and build two projects at exactly the same time. But, you know, as you'll have seen from our news announcements, you know, Tanga is, is motoring its way through its FS at the moment. And obviously, you know, part of the strategy here with with what's going on and, and the uncertainty that's currently sitting with us with Niger is that, yeah, absolutely that. There's, there's nothing to slow Zambia down. You know, our target is to get that FS out, you know, by the summer of, of next year. You know, we have just updated our mineral resource estimate. We saw the total pounds go up. Uh, we saw the grade improve as part of the infill drilling. Uh, we've gone back again now that we have those optimal pits that come out of there that define the, the mineral resource estimate. We're now infill drilling some more. So there was some inferred left over, uh, mainly because the pits went slightly deeper and slightly wider than we we're expecting them to. So we'd been drilling in what we thought was the pit, the final pit. Um, but because the resource got bigger, those final pits got bigger and we suddenly realized that we had more in inferred to go back and drill. So we obviously want to do that because we'd like to benefit the feasibility study with as much pounds as we can. Um, we're ongoing with the, the test work that needs to be done to just verify 
the the metallurgy i mean we didn't do the original metallurgy back in 2008 2009 that was obviously done by denison and and africa energy at the time um so we know we're verifying that we've got an esia update running down there at the moment as well um because the dibwe east deposit which is now more than half of the resource was not included and now needs to be brought into any permitting that's going on down there as well. So that keeps moving along steadily. It's well within its time frame. You obviously can only go far so fast. I mean, because there are so many components that fit together within a feasibility study that you know, some things just can't start until something else is done. So, you know, I think summer next year is a, is a decent time frame. I think what we will see change though, if we don't get any clarity is we will advance a lot quicker into the financing side of, of Zambia than we probably would have done. Um, and I think the one thing that became clear is that from a jurisdictional point of view, we probably have a, a wider net that we can cast. You know, we cast the net wide for, for Matawala anyway, but a number of financing entities that we approached, it, it wasn't the fact that it was just, they just don't do Niger. I mean, they don't have any banking in there. I mean, there aren't that many banks in Niger. So, if, you know, some banks, particularly African banks, if they don't have a presence, will not lend. Um, so but with Zambia, that, that changes a lot, particularly with the Southern African banks. There's a, a, a rate, a larger range of them. Uh, a lot of them looked at it and they just said, sorry, but we, we just don't go that high up in Africa to be able to to finance on that but zambia falls well within that in their basket yeah i think zambia is a nice little additional asset that the company has to lean on right now especially with the uncertainty in nigeria matawell is a great project and can work really well with uh, some of the pricing that we're expecting to see going forward in the sector but i think the zambia approach and increased focus uh, as you guys wait i think that completely makes sense to look at daniel and it's good that you guys have that second project there. And it's a very yeah. good project. It's very simple. Um, you know, it's got very low acid consumption in a country that produces acid out of the copper belt. As you said, there's already been experience of the transport of uranium. We threw from Kyla Caria through to Wolfis Bay. The government is working very closely with us on the radiation side. Some of it's new, but they're very keen to see diversification. The government as a whole, you know, is very pro mining and wants to see new and that includes us as well you know there's a lot of exploration upside there and you know at some point we'll probably come to valuation but i'll, I'll, I'll raise it and i can raise it again later i can double up on my comment but we're we're trading you know the 65 dollar uranium price um matanga comes up to about 190 million dollar mpv and we're like the high 20s irr um you know we're trading a about a third of that value at the moment, you know, on an NAV basis. So, you know, at the moment we're undervalued just on our holding, in my view, on on Matanga and Matawela is risk is fully priced in uh, to this stock at the moment. Well, I think we're pretty clear on just your guys's view on your investment in Nigeria and of course the moving Matawela forward in Nigeria. I think that's pretty clear to based on what you've said here and what you guys would normally do here, just in the situation that we have with Nigeria. 
and then obviously the government relations you spoke to earlier, knowing the Minister of Mines and some of the parties there, and of course, having to balance with the various parties um, and the potential for those parties to change quite quickly as this issue goes on. Just back to valuation here, Daniel. Do you see that the current share price is an opportunity to buy shares from a management and board position to increase yeah. their positions? And then with that, just also talk about how you see incentives and how you are rewarded to make this company become a success at the end. Yeah, I do. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it is, there is opportunities for us here as well. I obviously have my shares. Some people would say I don't have enough, but I also have my options. Um, that are sitting there. They are worth something. Particularly if there's a transaction, as you know, options get bought out as well. So there is an incentive for me here to to get that share price up and, and drive through on these projects. And as I just pointed out, you know, we're not even seeing the value of Matanga built into our project at all. And I think that's something we just kind of don't get why, uh, you know, I don't think people give Matanga enough credit. It is a fantastic project uh, in a safe jurisdiction going forward. We don't have a massive bonus scheme. We keep everything as lean as mean. As a company, it's very much a focus of, of getting the right things out of our management, and, and they do. They're very incentivized here uh, to, to make it happen. And you know, you can speak to any, we have a small management team as well, and we've only got six people in the whole of management. Uh, we, we cross cover on, on many things to make sure that you know, we're, we're constructive there. Um, you know, from my point of view, I'm also, you know, anyone can look at our uh, annual accounts and there's a clause in there. If I can do a great transaction here, I'm also incentivized. Therefore, I want the value of this projects, these projects to be as high as I can then we'll get them um, because, you know, it's to my value as well. Look at the various ways that people can be incentivized here. And, you know, there's a lot of other parts and pieces that go into this. I think sometimes folks uh, get a little bit out of control in the sense that, oh, oh, there's insider buying at this point. And what is that in proportion to the wealth of that insider? How is the various other pieces play into that consideration? And I think sometimes there's a little bit of tunnel vision that happens there with respect to that. I'd like to get your other comments here that you wanted to mention before we wrap up. But I also want to just ask this one as well, audience question uh, off topic uh, from what we were just discussing, but just back kind of bigger picture, your position on climate change and is commercial nuclear power part of that solution? And then just with that couple in, are humans fully responsible for climate change or do we have... Uh, the in, the inability or not the capacity as humans, given we only live 80 to 100 years roughly, to really comprehend climate change in the sense that if you were, were a geologist, and of course, Daniel, I'm not saying you are, you're a mining no, I'm engineer, a mining engineer. But, but of, <laughs> no, but of course, so. yeah, you're a mining engineer, but of course, from a geologist's perspective, you know, we look at deposit formations that take hundreds of years, if not much, much more than that to form. And then also that we haven't done a good job of keeping records. But uh, climate change uh, is certainly something that has happened over a much bigger picture in terms of thousands of years, if not much more, of course. So just your comments on that uh, before we go. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this has to come as my opinion uh, of how I see it. I, I mean, I think the way I look at it, and you're right, if you, if you, I mean, you can hunt the internet for all sorts of things. And I, I did find a piece on something archaic as, you know, the measurements of, carbon and ice over time. And, you know, if you look at over a long enough period of time, it, it's very difficult to see, 
you know, where where all those different shifts are. But there are periods clearly where temperatures go up and carbon emissions are related to it. And obviously, all of the, the research out there is from what, 1850 or something as that nominal benchmark of the industrial start of the industrial. I suppose from my point of view, look, you know, just walking around, things are getting hotter, the weather systems are getting more extreme, whether that's you know, related totally to, to man-made carbon emissions, or we're looking at a, a shift of, you know, where the planet is in its path. I find there's got to be a balance there. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we've had an industrial revolution. We as humans have got to take responsibility for the planet we're sitting on, no matter what, whether it, it is all going to be piled onto climate change or not we at the end of the day ha have a responsibility not only for ourselves but for our generations to come you know and it, it, you know we have an anti-smoking league for a reason you know you can't be sucking cigarettes into your lungs and expect not to get cancer um the same applies to many other areas but i think there has to be a pragmatism out there of how to achieve what we're trying to achieve do i think going to you know, zero emissions is is the right thing. I think moving in that direction is clearly the right thing to do. You can't keep putting pollution out up into the sky forever. I mean, the same way that we got rid of high sulfur coals, because, you know, Scandinavia, when we were burning high sulfur coals here in the UK, was finding acid rain. So, you know, there is knock-on effects of our industry we, and that we have. And cutting emissions, whatever emissions are that are out there, you're trying to do. And same as the we on our projects look aggressively of how can we reduce our water consumption, even in jurisdictions where we have water. But, you know, water is becoming a major asset out there in the world going forward and, and needs to be protected. So I think this is very much part of it. But I think the one thing I am very supportive of is the nuclear industry and what it is trying to achieve. In fact, we've changed our corporate presentation depending on when I'm presenting. And the first six, seven slides of that presentation now literally go through why I think nuclear should be part of the whole change. I mean, I don't know if you saw recently, but the UK government had no bids for offshore wind because the offshore wind, which portrays to be a cheap industry, needs so many bloody subsidies that it realizes that the government's capping them out now and saying, well, no, you've got to pay a sensible price and you're locking them in. And what the wind industry has done here in the UK is bid cheap and then fight for higher prices later. So it gets in and then demands higher prices. And the government said, no, no more you're doing that. You're fixing your price and you're accepting it. Um, so I think what we find with, with nuclear is that it is one of the lowest emitters for carbon. It's one of the safest forms. It is incredibly low cost over the life of the the capital invested, particularly now reactors are getting pushed out to long life. I mean, at WNA, they're talking about reactors going out to 100 years in life. So no matter what you've invested at the front, you know, if you can depreciate that over 100 years, that's a great return on your investment uh, going forward. But I think, you know, the key is it's there all of the time. We looked at in our project, and just give you from a small concept, renewables, we looked at solar as part of Maduela. Obviously, we're in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Why would you not look at solar energy to kind of reduce your risk on supply? Because obviously, we were taking uh, off the grid, which is controlled by Niger Elec. We looked at doing batteries, and 
it was more expensive to put batteries in than to burn diesel you know and that's where you know the issue i have with a lot of the renewables they they've got to be there for a reason but you need base load and the only base load that i can see that works at the moment that's new and renewable is going to be nuclear very well i appreciate opinions on all of this daniel and it's always great to get them from our guests as we talk about these issues and of course uh, i'm going to keep my comments pretty limited on this just in the sense that you know i think people have to look at the facts and i think they have to look at the data and i think they have to question some of the narratives that are put out and i think if you start there and you follow the money i think those are all very good places and good advice for people to to look at this look at these issues obviously you and i are in full agreement with commercial nuclear power is obviously uh, a very very good solution and of course the lead times and the costs have gotten out of hand simply because of bureaucracy and specifications that don't need to be there. Yeah. But uh, that's, you say that's that, obviously. but the Chinese are building them on time and on budget. ENEC presented at the WNA on time and on budget. So it is possible to build nuclear reactors on time and on budget. We've just got to figure out how to do it in our uh, Western world and uh, stop mucking around and, and get with the process. And, you know, the regulators, suppliers, builders, nuclear utilities have all got to get aligned. And it is achievable because clearly other jurisdictions are doing it. That is correct. And that was what I was referring to as predominantly most of your Western jurisdictions. Unfortunately, as you would say, mucking it up, you look at our competition and they're doing a much better job and very, very fascinated and very much uh, happy with what the UAE has been able to put together at Baccarat. Great project and a model for many people to follow. I suppose we'll leave it there for now. We could keep talking, of course, but uh, for the sake of time, I'll let you get on with your day and, of course, mine. But uh, for potential investors who are listening in, the company has a market capitalization of about 98 million Canadian dollars. Why should Goviex be considered within the institutional family office and retail investors portfolio, given the events and at this stage in the cycle? As we already highlighted, I mean, let's just go to the valuation. I mean, you're getting a really excellent project in Matang already at a big discount. Uh, we have got our flagship out there at Madawella still. I, I still remain optimistic of where we are, but you're getting that for free, an optionality going forward. You know, we're a company that are going to be sitting. We have the two permitted projects we can develop forward. We've done shown our ability to work in Africa going forward. And then, of course, the commodity side is just getting stronger and stronger uh, and the leverage is sitting there. So, you know, we're a company that I believe is is massively discounted um, and has very much the leverage to come around as an entity. And we'll show that with our ability to to move Matanga forward. And as I say, I think Madawella will come around and we'll get that as well. And Daniel, how can they contact the company? Uh, the best way is to come through our info one. So that's info at govx.com. And my head of corporate communications, Isabel, looks after that and make sure that I see all of them and reply to them. Excellent. Well, Daniel, always good to catch up. We appreciate your continued efforts at Govx. Looking forward to following this and all the issues in Niger, of course, as well with it. Best of luck and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you very much. And thanks for the opportunity to answer some of these questions.